Well, if you would uh, turn to John 15, our sermon text begins in, or chapter 15 rather, our sermon text begins in verse 18. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Those words came in response to a statement, quote, swear and I will release thee, reproach Christ. Well, history tells us that from A.D. 161 to A.D. 191, Marcus Aurelius, many of you have heard that name, led a fierce persecution charge against Christians. This, according to Christian history, was called the fourth persecution. Fox's Book of Martyrs, many of you are familiar with that, I would encourage you to read it, has the following account related to the quote I just read. Polycarp, the venerable bishop of Smyrna, hearing that persons were seeking for him, escaped, but was discovered by a child. After feasting the guards who apprehended him, he desired an hour in prayer, which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency, tradition tells us this, that his guards repented that they had been instrumental in taking him. He was, however, carried before the proconsul, condemned and burnt in the marketplace. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Well, this is just one account of persecution in that book. Again, I would commend it to you. And throughout history, followers of Christ have been persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They've been maligned, hated, even killed as Polycarp for being united to Jesus, their master. Earlier this year, Joe Carter, some of you know that name, he writes for the Gospel Coalition. He had an article online called The Countries Where It's Most Dangerous to Be a Christian. There were a lot of stats, but the countries on that list were North Korea, that was first, and then you had Afghanistan, Nigeria, India, Iran, Libya, Nathan just prayed for Nigeria, a lot of persecution there. Well, in North Korea alone, it's estimated, the article said, that 50,000 to 70,000 Christians have been imprisoned. Quote from the article, being discovered as a Christian is a death sentence in North Korea. Let that sink in. Being discovered as a Christian is a death sentence in North Korea. So you're either going to be executed swiftly or die a slow death of imprisonment or torture if you are found out to be a follower of Christ. Very sobering for us. Well, the U.S. did not make the list, but that's not to say that there's not persecution here. We have yet to see widespread kind of death sentences that some other countries have, but perhaps we can see far off in the distance generations to come that it will be the same. But we do have opposition here, hostility in the workplace. Some of you experience that. Our families, some of you kiddos at school for following Jesus. The point is the, the world system is anti-Jesus and against those who follow him. So like those who stoned Stephen in Acts 7 with gritted teeth and put their hands over their ears because they didn't want to hear the gospel, that's the world's posture towards gospel going. It's the same heart of opposition. So enter now with Jesus into John 15, who's going to speak to us about our relationship to the world. As Jordan mentioned last week, John 15 begins with uh, the vine and the branches, our relationship to Jesus, our love to Jesus, and then our relationship to one another, love one another as I have loved you. And now Jesus is taking them close. He's about to leave them, die on a cross, and he's got some important things that he wants to share in these remaining moments, their relationship with the world. It's very sobering, but he's very clear about what they can expect. 
So read with me there, chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me, but these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let me pray for our time together. Oh, Spirit, Spirit of truth, comforter, helper, we pray that you would come now and that you would testify of Jesus. Show us him through this book that we might be edified and encouraged and helped. And we pray that you would also save sinners in this room today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we consider the passages before us in this chapter, it seems to to break down very naturally in three ways. So we're gonna consider those breaks. Uh, Number one, From verses 18 to 25, we're going to consider the persecution of Jesus' followers by the world. Verses 26 and 27, the empowerment of Jesus' followers by the Spirit. And finally, in chapter 16, those first four verses, the encouragement for Jesus' followers by Jesus. So you don't have to remember those in full length, but persecution, empowerment, and encouragement. Well, as we move into this first section, considering Jesus' followers being persecuted by the world, he begins with these very sobering words. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's verse 18. Well, if you're a lister, you like making lists of things, this passage is a good uh, chapter here to do so. You see these clauses, these if-then clauses, they're scattered throughout. Also, the world shows up several times, six times, and then you see the word hate and hated. So we start to see some of those themes emerge as we read the passage together. Well, in verse 18, Jesus is talking to his disciples about what to expect. He wants them to know what's going to happen to them so that they're not caught off guard. And as we'll see in the chapter, Jesus' words, though it's very sobering, there's also consolation and encouragement and comfort for his people. Now, if the world hates you, behind that world if, it's implied that there's no doubt that it's going to happen. If the world hates you, and it will. So Jesus is very specific about what he's saying to them about the world. Well, what does that mean? Are we talking about the globe? Are we talking about the trees and the grass and the countries? Well, Don Carson helps us with that word, world, in his helpful commentary. The created moral order, he says, this is the world. The created moral order in active rebellion against God. The created moral order in active rebellion against God. So we're not necessarily talking about something social, though we are in a society of God-haters. We're talking theological and moral. 
all that is ungodly, all that is unrighteous against the one true God. Jesus described this world in John chapter 7 when he said, I testify of it, he's talking about the world, because its deeds are evil. So this is the world in which we find ourselves and Jesus is making sure that his people know. He's commanding them to know, to grow in their knowledge and understanding that in the world there is opposition for us. So as we think about persecution, it does beg the question, and I believe the passage answers it, why does the world hate Jesus' followers? Why does the world hate Jesus' followers as we consider this first point? Well, I believe the passage gives us, Jesus himself gives us two reasons. One, Christ's followers do not belong to the world, and two, Christ's followers belong to Christ. So let's just consider for a moment Christ's followers not belonging to the world. Jesus says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So if you were of the world, the world would love you. But the opposite is true for the Christian. You're not. So the world hates you. And that word hate, it's like pursuing with hatred. It's to detest, it's a settled attitude. It's not ebbing and flowing, it's settled. The world hates Jesus's followers. Well, we should pause and remember for a moment that we were once of the world. Do you remember when you belonged to the world? Now, I'm not asking you to go and live there in all those thoughts. I'm just saying, do you remember As we've already noted, Jesus said that the world's deeds are evil. And in Ephesians 2, very familiar passage, Paul is telling us what it was like for us when we lived in that world and we belonged there. He said, we once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. Now, this world is the domain of darkness that Paul also talks about in Colossians. We belonged in this world. We felt at home there. We rearranged the furniture in that home. We loved living there. We belonged there, and the world loved us. But there's something different about Christ's followers. Jesus is saying that his people, those that follow him, are not of this world. Well, why? Look at verse 19 again. You are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. For this reason, the world hates you. Something glorious has happened to the people of God. We no longer belong to this world. We're no longer joined in rebellion. We no longer are in the midst of the vanities and the pleasures. Let's the gospel wash over us again as we consider not belonging to this world. So two familiar passages, but O oh Spirit, overwhelm us with the love of Christ again, Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's been a transfer in belonging. The address has changed. We used to belong to the kingdom of darkness, this world, but now we've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 11. Think about the transfer here and the belonging here owing to the gospel. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's belonging so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness, world, into his marvelous light, new kingdom. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We belong to someone, not something. Now I get we're in a new kingdom, but it's because we belong to the king. Peter loves to use these words in his epistle, aliens and strangers. This is what we are now here because of Christ's saving love. We are not of this world. 
Look at verse 19 again. Don't you love this language? But I chose you out of the world. It's the same as verse 16 that Pastor Jordan preached on last week. God's initiating election of his people. The world hates that. A sovereign king whose, whose purposes will never be thwarted. May it never be, says the world, as they lift up their hands to hate him. And for us, it's a wonderful reminder when we think about belonging to a new place, it had nothing to do with us. It's all of grace. There was no goodness in us to get the transfer. There wasn't a golden passport to go from one country to another. It was all owing to his grace. There's nothing in us that commends us to God. So it's wonderful news, even early in this sermon, to pause and think about the gospel again, that through his death and resurrection, we sang about it earlier, brings us to God. So in the same way that Jesus called the disciples in this passage back in John 1, he's done it to us. Follow me. They immediately followed him. So if you're a Christian, he initiated that to you. And he said, follow me. And you saw him with new eyes and you have followed him. He chose us. We belong to him. Darkness to light, blindness to sight, death to life. Love those descriptions. They're all biblical. Poverty to riches, all because of Christ. As we think about persecution and not belonging to this world, Many of you know that Brandy and I moved to Indiana, from Indiana to the south many years ago, 24 years. So we're, we're coming from the north, moving to the deep south. And we visited, uh, before Grace Church, the only church we were ever a part of, we visited this church, went to Sunday school class, and we never left for eight years. We met a lot of sweet people there. Two months after we uh, joined, uh, some of our dearest friends at the time said, I remember that day you guys showed up. Y'all were not from around here. Isn't this the way that the world should view us as Christians? We're just not from around here. Or think about it this way. Let's say after church, you, or if you have a family, you and your family decided that you're going to fly to another country and move there. You're not taking anything from the house. You've sold your house. You got backpacks on you. You got money. You don't know anybody there. You don't have a house. You have nothing but you're moving to a country in the middle of nowhere. You don't speak the language, you don't know anybody, you don't know the culture, you don't have currency, only American dollars. Now when you land there and you walk out of that airport, you're gonna feel like a stranger and an alien. In the hustle and bustle, people are gonna stare, they're gonna think that you're weird. It's not that you don't have money, it's that you can't use it. It's not that you can't speak, it's that you can't speak their language. You don't belong. Now add to the illustration, you going to a country in the middle of nowhere that hates the United States. Maybe not so much when you get off that they hate you personally in that moment, but they hate the country that you're from. They hate the country, they hate the government. And so because you're tied to that country, you draw their hate and their scorn. Isn't that us here? We don't belong. We don't speak the language. We don't look alike. We have different ways of doing things. Jesus has redeemed us and we no longer live under the government of the kingdom of darkness. We have a new king. And Jesus says in 1 John chapter 3, do not be surprised if the world hates you. As Christians, we look like him. We talk like him. We think like him. We love like him. We serve like him. And we want to do that more and more. We don't belong in the world. Well, this leads us to the second subpoint under this heading. The second reason, so we're persecuted because we don't belong to this world. And really the main reason, because we belong to Christ. This is really the ultimate reason. The world hates Jesus, so it will hate his disciples. Look at verse 21 where I get this. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Christ's followers belong to Christ. We bear his name. 1 Peter 4.14, maybe you can dial it up. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. This is him whom we love. This is whom, who we belong to you to. 
a savior king who hunted us down with his love to save us from our sins. I love it in our services. We're not going to do it here right now, but I love it when someone leads in prayer and says, just praise Jesus for who he is. And all along the room, praise you, Jesus, for being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Praise you, Jesus, for being our advocate. Praise you, Jesus, for being the treasure of Ephesians 1. Praise you, Jesus, for being Emmanuel, God with us. This is who we belong to. And the list goes on and on and on. Samuel Rutherford, that old Puritan, said, to live on Christ's love is the king's life. This is why we just sang, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious Savior of my ruined life, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulders in my place. You suffered, bled, and died. This is who we belong to. And we won't go there, but this is what we see in Acts chapter 4. Christians persecuted because they belong to Jesus. Remember Peter and John, the uneducated and untrained men? They had healed a man in chapter 3. Chapter 4, 5,000 get saved because they're preaching Jesus. The religious people that day aren't happy, so they throw him in prison. And then the next day in the center of all that, they ask him, by what power? By what power do you do this? But they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that later. And he said, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He's the chief cornerstone. So Peter and John, belonging to Christ now, not belonging to the world, and because Christ was hated by the world, they were hated and persecuted. We'll look at verse 20 again. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus uses the same words here that he did in John 13. But in John 13, when he's talking about servant and master, he's washing their feet and showing them something about humility and service and dying to self. And here it's interesting that the context is oppression and persecution. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Christ, they'll persecute us. And just a few more chapters away from us, this hatred would be made manifest when Jesus hangs between two thieves on a cross. After being beaten and humiliated, shot through with a crown of thorns, the cries of hatred, let him save himself. Crucify him. It all culminates in his execution, death. We belong to Christ. Well, how can we think about application even now? Thinking about being persecuted and not belonging to the world and belonging to Christ. There seems to be so much here, but two categories. One for us as believers in the church and one for those who are here today who would say we're not Christians. It's good for us as Christ followers to examine ourselves not introspection that drives us mad, but honest before the Lord, before the cross with hope in view, asking hard questions for him to help us. Does the world love you? We should ask that question. Does the world love you? Do you seek the love of the world? How is your relationship to the world, beloved? Now, we're not after a martyr complex. It needs to be said that if one of the responses to this sermon or these passages is, we pick up the Christian flag, we run out of here and we go look for persecution. We go look to be hated. We, we, we use that as our primary goal. Then we've missed the point of what Jesus is saying. The reality of this passage is that the more we look like Jesus, the more conformed we are to Jesus, the more we will be treated like him. That conformity affects the world around us. We affect the world in the same way Jesus did and we draw its scorn. But drawing its scorn is not the primary aim. It's what John tells us in the beginning of this chapter. It's abiding in the love of Christ. It's being conformed to his image. So it's good for us to consider our relationship with the world and honest, before Jesus, transparent, help us. 
Where are those areas, Lord? Is there no opposition? Is there no rejection? Does the world love me? There's hope in view. Repentance, forgiveness. So let's seek his face that way and ask an honest examination about our relationship with the world. He's not taking us out of the world. In John 17, he's going to pray for his disciples. We live here, right? He says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Well, the second application would be for our non-Christian friends. We don't say it much. We should say it more. There's a cost associated with following Christ. Maybe you're thinking today, you've been here before, and you're thinking, this Christianity sounds wonderful. I need my sins forgiven. I love this whole belonging thing about a new kingdom, a new address, not being of this world. Jesus also was persecuted. And he tells us here that in following him, we will be treated like him. He says in Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross. Everybody back then knew what that meant and follow after me. So maybe you would say, well, I I don't know about that. I don't know about that part. Well, you can't split Jesus into two different parts. You either want all of him or you get none of him. So Jesus bids you to come. It's the same invitation. It's come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus stands before you and says, if you'll come to me, I'll give you myself. If you repent from your sins and believe in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, he will have you abundant mercy. But just know that behind that invitation, in that invitation is, there is a cost. And for the Christian on this side of it, it's not a cost. <laughs> He's the sufficient Savior. It's, it's 1 Peter 4.13, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. There's no cost there when you're walking with the sufficient one. Well, the world hates us because we belong to Christ. It hates Christ. So it it begs the question as we think about persecution. This is the longest point. The other two won't be near as long. But why does the world hate Christ? Jesus is going to tell us here. There's four reasons, I believe, in the passage. We'll just take them one by one. Because the world does not know the Father. Verses 21, verses 23, verse 24, and chapter 16, verse 3. Jesus makes it clear in two verses that they hate him because they don't know the one who sent me. That's verse 21. And in chapter 16, verse 3, because they don't know the Father. Now, the same theme appears in verses 23 and 24 when he equates hate for himself with hate for the Father. So why do they hate Jesus? Because the world doesn't know his Father. Now, Jesus has been clear throughout John's gospel that the Father has sent him to redeem a people for his own possession. So it was the Father's plan, the Son happily and voluntarily, we see that through John, agreed to carry out this plan. He's also made it clear, which is when the, the hate really got turned up, that he and the Father are one. There's a unique relationship between him and his Father. Jesus, according to John 1 verse 18, explains God. So he's not just a man, he's God. He's the God-man. Now there are several passages, but I'll read one as we consider this point about Jesus and his Father. It's John 5, 17 through 18. It was after the man was healed. Everybody's pretty upset with him. He says, Jesus says in that chapter, but he answered them, my Father is working until now and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, that was bad enough for them, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus said, they hate me because they don't know the father. They don't know the one who sent me. 
If they knew the Father, like John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If they knew God that way, it's eternal life. If they loved God and loved the Father, they would love Jesus. If they loved Jesus, they loved the Father. And they wouldn't have hated him. That's what happened to us, right? John 17, 3. This speaks also to what Jesus tells them in chapter 16, verse 3, that there is an hour coming. He's talking about the religious leaders in that day. We'll look at that shortly. Who believed in God, believed in God, but didn't want the Messiah. Well, again, you can't have it your way. Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. You cannot know God without Jesus. You don't get to come to the Father without Jesus. He says that in John 14. So the world hates Jesus because it doesn't know the Father. And then I'll put the next two together, two and three. It's because of Christ's words and his works. Jesus speaks about this very clearly in verse 22 and verse 24. Look at verse 22 with me. If I had not come and spoken to them, his words, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And then in verse 24, works, if I had not done among them the works, which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Jesus is saying something about his words and his works. I asked Ruthie this week, I said, why do you think the people hated Jesus so much? And she said, because he preached the Bible? And that's true. It's because of his words. Does this mean that the world was not guilty before Christ came? Absolutely not. Jesus is not saying that. Well, what did Jesus' words do? Well, Jesus, as the revelation of God to man, which was John 1, his words exposed the religiosity of their day, the religious people as self-righteous frauds. He does it today as well. So this Messiah who had been promised, we sang about it earlier from ages past by the prophets, he comes as the horn of salvation. Well, when he opened his mouth, go back and read the first 14 chapters slowly, he exposed the sinfulness of man and pointed to himself like this, the living bread. You hungry? The living water. You thirsty? The light of the world, you're in darkness, I'm the light of the world. The truth, and they rejected him. That's what he's saying here. You're rejecting me, the full revelation of God. And if you reject Jesus' words, you reject the Father's words. J.C. Ryle, the old bishop, reenacting these words here, a moment of meditation, he says this about these passages. If I had not come, he's speaking as Jesus, among them and spoke before and taught such truths as no one ever taught before, they would not have been so guilty as they are. But now they have no excuse for their unbelief. They cannot say that they were not taught in the plainest way who I am and who sent me. So Jesus' prophetic words are met with hatefulness and it heaps just loads and loads of condemnation on the world. Well, his works also are reasons why he's hated. I read the passage, sign after sign. We know in John's gospel, he he speaks about these signs, these miracles, and what do they do? They do what his words did. They point to Christ. They reveal who he is. Lord of the Sabbath, John 5. Living bread, light of the world. And what was their response? The same as his words. Rejection. We know that the hatefulness heated up in John 5 after he healed the lame man. And by the time we get to chapter 11, verse 53, the religious leaders, so from that day on they planned together to kill him. So his words and his works both pointed to who he was. The long-awaited Messiah, both God and man would save. He's the only way to God. And just like Hebrews 4.12 to us, the living word, walking in that day, cut through the morrow and fatness of self-righteousness and vainglory, and they rejected him for it. From chapter 11, when the plan is hatched to kill him, it's literally executed in chapter 19, just a few chapters away, 
And Jesus breathed his last. So we have not knowing the one who sent him, not knowing the Father, his words, his works. And then finally, we could say that the world hates Christ to fulfill Scripture. Look at verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now Jesus here is quoting likely Psalm 69. You find the same words in Psalm 35. Many believe that he's quoting from Psalm 69. This is a Psalm of David. You don't have to turn there. It's a long Psalm. And Jesus sees himself there and quotes, quotes the words here. David notes that he is a servant of the Lord in that Psalm. He's a lowly servant of the Lord. Sounds like someone else. He's sorely afflicted. And he says, those who hate me without cause are more than the hairs of my head. That's in Psalm 69. There's themes of verbal abuse, scorn, being maligned in that Psalm, in his prayer. If David could be hated like this for no reason, D.A. Carson says it, he says, how much more the Messiah who would spring from his loins. Jesus sees himself there and the ones who hated him without cause actually fulfill the scriptures for hating this one without cause, their own scriptures. Well, that's Jesus' followers being persecuted by the word. Now, the last two points of the sermon, number two the empowerment of Jesus' followers by the Spirit. So persecution, and now we're going to think about empowerment. The empowerment of Jesus' followers by the Spirit. Read with me verses 26 and 27. It seems disjointed, but it fits. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me and you will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. What Jesus shares in John 15 is really sobering. There's a lot of love in the beginning, right? Love to Christ, love to one another. And then in verse 18, it changes. Hate, persecution, excommunication, we'll get there in 16. Murder, we'll get there in 16. It's very sobering. There's gonna be opposition. And he does say very specifically that in chapter 16, we go from the world, and certainly the religious leaders are a part of that unbelieving rebellion against God, but he's gonna tell them specifically, they're gonna kick you out of the synagogues for being one of my disciples. They're going to murder you and think that they're offering service worship to God. So Jesus knows, he knows that once he's gone, he's been taking all of it now, but he knows once he's gone that all of the arrows are gonna be pointed at his people it will come to them. So we can imagine, right, the fear, the confusion, what they may have felt like. And look, none of us, if we're honest, are very good at evangelism. Some of you are much better than I am. I'm just thinking about my own heart. And there are times that we shrink back because of opposition or fear of rejection. I can remember when I first became a Christian in college, um, the first person I went and told was Brandy. Now I realize there's a whole nother sermon there, but we were together. I gotta tell her about Jesus. And because she grew up like a good Lutheran, she said to me with no emotion, I already know that. Praise God, two months later, she was rescued. But there was some, we're not talking about Afghanistan, and I'm not making light of that, but there was some opposition, there was some rejection. Now that same year, that happened over Christmas break. So here I'm in one semester, belonging to this world over here with all the people I lived with at college. Saved at Christmas time, so when I go back, what do you think happens? It was real opposition, real rejection. And if we're honest, it hurts to be rejected by people, especially people that thought you thought loved you. So with all that opposition and hatred, think about this passage now. How does the ministry continue? What happens? Christ followers ministering in a world that hates them with an unbelievable message on the surface? Well, Jesus mentions here in verse 26 that help is coming. 
We already have it, but to them, help was coming. And he'll expound on this more in chapter 16, but he mentions it here. The helper, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father is coming, and he's coming to help. So in John 16, Jordan and Nathan will be in that chapter, but just listen to some of the works of Jesus as we think about what he's doing in John 15. He will glorify me, Jesus says in John 16. He will take of mine and disclose it to you. He takes what Christ discloses it to his people. He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He leads them in the truth of Christ. These are his works in the face of opposition and rejection. As we go out to spread his eternal joy, Jesus says here that the helper is going to come and he will testify about Christ. He will witness to the revelation of Christ himself and he does it through his people. What is the Spirit giving witness to? J-E-S-U-S, who is the full revelation of God. And that will bring division, that will bring opposition, and that will bring hatred. I'm convinced after reading John 15, 18 through 16, 4, that an exposition of this passage is the book of Acts. It's the book of Acts. Isn't this what happens to Stephen who belongs to Christ? I won't read it all. But you remember that sermon that he gives. He's extolling the person of Christ to the religious elite of his day. I mean, just loads and loads of gospel grace. And what happens? They don't want to hear it anymore. Hands over ears, teeth gritted, picking up stones. He's full of the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach Jesus. And they stone him. They kill him. So in the midst of an opposing world, one who hates the high king of heaven and his subjects, the gospel goes forth. Because of the testimony of God's revelation in Christ by the Holy Spirit, it just moves ahead. The book of Acts shows us and then through history we get to us and then past us. So let's talk about evangelism for a minute. I noticed in every commentary that I had that I considered, this application showed up in many places, thought it would be good to name it here. We know it, but it's good to hear it again. John 15, though it's sobering, should not discourage us. It should encourage us. Because even though this world is what Jesus says it is, it doesn't stop the purposes of God's redemption in Christ that keeps going and going. And so we go out with gospel love, not, not to hate the world who hates us, but like Jesus, preaching mercy, in grace to this world who doesn't want to hear it. We go with the one who says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So it should encourage us. It should fuel our fires. Jesus tells us what to expect, and he tells us who's going with us, the Holy Spirit. So it should encourage us to go to a world that so desperately needs it. I asked a few brothers this week before we get to our last point, to help me with some application. And all of them said something very similar. They said, have you thought about the holidays? Have you thought about Christmas? And it's true. Again, we don't wanna minimize it. We're, we're not talking about the things we talked earlier here. It's likely that we will not be killed in our families for being Christ followers here. And I don't say that lightly because it happens in other places. But we're all about to embark on the holidays and there's real opposition in our families, most of them. I know most of yours, most of your stories, there is in mine, and there's real rejection. Some of you have parents who don't want anything to do with you because of the gospel. Those things are real. And so John 15 helps us when we think about what's to come over the next couple weeks. Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. We're not going to look for the hate, we're taking the love of Christ with us, but he says, don't be surprised. And so we can take comfort in John 15 and in Jesus who spoke those words to his disciples there and to us by application. He is with us, he's with us. And as we think about John 15 as a whole and the holidays and oppression and all those things that come with it that are hard, 
Remember the corporate passage from last week. Love one another as I've loved you. So grab those brothers and sisters and say, it's gonna be a hard week when I go visit my parents. Will you pray for me? And if you're that person, initiate that encouragement in a John 15 way to say, I'm praying for you as you take the gospel to your families or as you talk to them. So let's be for one another. The holidays are upon us. Jesus has words for us and application to be comforted by, to not be surprised if the world hates us. Well, the final point, we've talked about persecution, the empowerment by the Spirit, and then finally, the encouragement for Jesus' followers from Jesus himself. Look with me in chapter 16, verses one through four. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Well, we've already talked about how these are sobering passages. And it's, Jordan talked about a sandwich last week. We have one this week. It's verse one and verse four. And you have all this hard meat in the middle. Jesus is telling them, you're gonna be disowned by your people. You're gonna be excommunicated by your people. Some of you will be murdered. It's getting real. Like it's getting real for his disciples. When they kill Jesus, they're coming for his followers. Remember John chapter nine, the man who was healed? They went to the parents, and what'd they say? He's old enough, ask him. They didn't want to be excommunicated because it meant ostracized from their people, loss of job, real things, real hard things. D.A. Carson notes in his commentary, the greatest danger the disciples will confront from the opposition of the world is not death, but apostasy. Jesus knows their frame. He knows they need to be encouraged. He knows what's coming. He loves them. So can you hear him? Can you hear him in verse one? These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. These things I've spoken to you, some of your translations, so you will not fall away. He's with them. He is their trustworthy, faithful savior who is prophesying about what will happen to them so that when it happens, they will remember our king told us this would happen. And though it's hard, I know he's with us and we will lean into him because he is sufficient. He can be trusted. That's what Jesus is doing. Take comfort in me. He wants their faith strengthened. That's why we sang this today. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you these things so that you know that I am trustworthy and I am with you and I will hold you fast and keep you from falling away. Now Christian history teaches us about these men and what happened to them who were with him that day. Again, I say it's getting real. It's going to be real for these men. We often don't feel it because where we live. Nathan felt some of that in Nigeria. It's, it's about to get real for them. Peter, crucified upside down. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross. Thomas, impaled with a spear. Philip, either crucified or hanged. Matthew, possibly killed by the sword. Bartholomew or Nathaniel, either crucified or flayed. James the Greater, tradition tells us, or the Bible tells us he was beheaded with a sword. Simon the Zealot, either crucified or sawed or axed to death. Matthias, he was stoned or beheaded. James the Lesser, he was either sawn into pieces or stoned and clubbed. Jude, Thaddeus, either clubbed to death or killed with arrows. And John, the only one who made it to old age, except... We know that he survived being boiled in hot oil. It, his words are prophetic for them 
and us in many ways, but he's telling them what he already knows and he's coming alongside to encourage them in these final moments. I think about Peter. Tradition says he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to dishonor his Lord. He didn't, didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified like his Savior. I think about Peter, sanctified imagination, being crucified upside down. I don't know what that's like, but blood rushing to your head, throbbing headache. I mean, you've got all that pressure in your skull and your eyes. What's he thinking about in those last moments? Maybe he's in and out of consciousness. What is he thinking? What's going through his heart, the chambers of his soul? Perhaps he hears. He hears the spirit of truth, the comforter, say to him, this I have said to you so that you will not fall away. These things I have said to you to keep you from stumbling. Or it's chapter 16, do not let your heart be troubled. I have overcome the world. <laughs> With that smile, he breathes his last to be face to face with his faithful king, the trustworthy king who kept him fast all those days. Do you see, beloved, the world hates the followers of Christ. The spirit empowers us and Jesus encourages us with his own words. Well, as we close, my prayer is that the spirit of truth would give grace to us, to give us Christ-exalting words to say when persecution comes to sift us, and it will. Eighty and six years have I served him. Reproach Christ. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we're so thankful. We're so, so thankful for your word in John 15. Thank you for being very clear to us that we don't belong to the place that we once belonged. Thank you for the gospel grace, for choosing us, not because there was anything good in us, but because you did, but because you set your love on us. Thank you for the spirit of truth. Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider what we've just heard, consider our relationship to the world and its relationship to us. I pray that you would meet us there with the sufficiency of Christ and gospel hope that's held out to us. And Lord, we certainly pray in application as we move into this holiday season. There's a lot of hard conversations that are coming. There is gonna be some rejection. We certainly pray in application that we would not be surprised and that we would find Jesus to be all sufficient as we tell his good news and we leave the results to you, Lord. So we pray now that we would uh, believe what you said in your word and that next week when we gather again, that we wouldn't be the same people because of your spirit and your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.